0: Hello,
1: hi, and welcome to this episode of The Emma Gunn Show, where I'm joined by television presenter Gabby Logan. If you want to listen to this episode ad-free or you want to watch the conversation in full, in video, simply head to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gun Show and become a patron. A very warm welcome to The Emma Gunn Show, Gabby Logan. How are you? I'm very well, Emma. How are you? I'm really good. And I feel as though I know you incredibly well. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> because I read the book. I read the first half. And I honestly, I was just saying to the team here, I was very aware of when I was in the 90s. I felt like every <laughs> scene was set so perfectly. Oh, And I think, to be honest, given the tone of this show that it takes normally, I really appreciate someone who is honest, Cops to the good stuff, cops to the bad stuff, and seeks to then learn. And that really feels like such a theme throughout the whole book of this is my learning from this massive thing that happened in my life.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I'm at the stage at the moment where you have this thing that's so personal to you, you release it out there and you've got no idea how it's going to be received. But That really was the nub of why I wanted to do this, because I think my motivation, it was the beginning of lockdown. I had these two 14 year old twins at home and they were going through this really important period of their life. But in some strange circumstances, I started thinking about my life and thought about things I would really like them to know about and lessons I would like them to learn. So while it wasn't primarily, you know, focused on them, I was aware that they would read it and and I wanted to be really honest. I've always been, you know, tried to be as honest and authentic as possible. And um, so to, to to hear that that was your take is, well, it's made my day.
1: <laughs> oh, fabulous. Well, there's so much I want to unpick about it because it was really authentic. And there are definitely parts maybe when you're a bit younger where you could have sugarcoated it a little bit or <laughs> made uh, your your part in something seem a lot more benign than perhaps it was. And I'm just really curious about that process of revisiting those times in your life, and how you were able to actually face them head-on and be honest. Because I think that is a very, very hard
0: thing to do. Um, first of all, when you said a minute ago, I read the first half. Um, that is the title of the book. Emma hasn't just read half the <laughs> oh, yeah. book, um, and <laughs> I'm 50 next year, and I'm associated with sports, so I felt it was a kind of uh, acute title uh, about uh, my life and um it was interesting kind of the process of what I was going to write about because of course there are so many things that I haven't written about and um and I'd love to but I felt like I was being led almost down a path without any choice I was kind of writing things and I didn't know why I was writing about them and then I was learning about myself when I was writing so um for example um I go out with when I'm 16 years old I meet a man 10 years older than me who's about to get married and um You know, my kids uh, were absolutely aghast at that, that I, you know, that I went out with somebody effectively who, you know, I was was committing adultery and um, and how that unraveled, which was not very nice, really. And uh, when I look back now, I was young and naive, but I was also a party to that I wasn't you know I wasn't kind of being coerced or groomed into some kind of relationship that I didn't want I was flattered and I was um, I was feeling very um, I suppose um, grown up for the first time in my life and so I I kind of wanted to face that you know in a way that was honest and and not apportion blame to anybody else and I and I looked at it as well through, as a parent and thought what would I do differently if that happened to me with my 16 year old daughter and uh, you know it was it that was quite that was quite a hard chapter and quite a hard period to write about, actually, because I think my life might have gone in a very different direction at that age. If I would just experienced normal 16, 17, 18 year old relationships instead of something that was really serious and quite profound, really.
1: But again, to that point, it does feel as though you're very accepting of all of those things. You're very accepting of the fact that this did happen. Maybe my life would have been different had it gone another way. But I accept that it went this way and that's, that's great.
0: I'm happy with that. Yeah, because I think the one thing I've learned through lots of different experiences, and I talk a lot in the book as well about a really... I suppose, seismic thing that happened to me work-wise, you know, when I was dropped by one station, effectively, and then picked up by the BBC. And I think if you don't accept those things, if you don't learn to have some peace with them, you're carrying baggage through your life that's not really very helpful. And and you think about being weighed down by things. And I think we all want to kind of trip through life as lightly as we possibly can you know not not carrying things with us and there's you know there's enough going on in the world that you could get bogged down every day feeling you know just the the doom and gloom and the way news is presented now is it just feels so heavy and uh, you know there's there's all kinds of life things that happen every day that you could end up going to sleep at night feeling just a bit desperate and actually if you if you can't make peace with yourself about decisions you've made through your life it's It's going to be a really tough old journey. So I think um, it wasn't easy, you know, and I think I was almost in my 20s, you know, if I hadn't come to kind of terms with all of that and other things such as my brother dying, I think I I was heading towards some quite destructive and damaging behaviours, you know, that I wasn't being very kind to myself and it could have gone in a very different direction. So. I'm grateful for the people that I met that I was able to use their mentorship or use their, you know, their experience to to try and kind of lift me out of that and understand a little bit more. So
1: reading between the lines there, has one of the big shifts for you been about stop being so hard on yourself and placing huge expectations and actually treating yourself with kindness?
0: Yeah, I think I, I still have big expectations of myself. I think that's probably one of my... Um, it's it's hard to call it a fault because actually you know it drives you as well and it motivates you and you feel um kind of focused if you if you expect you know a lot of yourself but I think there have been times where it's too much you know and um you don't have to be perfect is absolutely something that I've learned about and I feel so much more kind of relaxed and balanced and uh happy about that than say in my 20s um when I didn't feel I was anywhere near perfect and I was trying to kind of chase something that was unattainable. And so I think um, it's it's social media and all the kind of those things that kind of have come on since my mid-twenties could have really derailed that actually. And so I'm glad I, I got to grips with those things at that age and I really feel for for young people who are growing up with that now without having had the experience of a life you know without it and try to understand that because you know I've got 17 year old twins as I mentioned and that is their reality that's their world um and so I I feel that um my my kind of drive to try and be the best is was always there but then it was exacerbated when my brother died because I was 19 he was 16 and suddenly not only did I want to be perfect and have you know kind of a great life and and do things well I knew he didn't have that opportunity and I felt like I was pushing forward for two people but I was quite conscious of that at the time as well it wasn't something that was subliminal it was almost like I was carrying him with me does that make sense
1: Mm. yeah and so how did you again going back to what we were talking about earlier was there a moment where you were able to to release that a little bit so that you weren't constantly pushing and fighting
0: Yeah, I was very lucky to meet somebody when I worked for Sky. I came down to London from working in local radio in Newcastle, having graduated from Durham. And in a very short period of time, you know, from graduating to starting at Sky, it was about sixteen months, and there I was, with this TV job in London, with the flat in Richmond that I'd always wanted, you know. And I was twenty-three years old, and I couldn't believe it. I was living in this, this two-bedroom flat, and I had my car, and I was, you know, all the kind of material things that I thought um, I was striving for. And I met this guy who was a mentor. He was a well. He was actually brought into Sky to train up presenters, and he turned out to be a life mentor. And he introduced me to a woman who was. An acupuncturist and really a therapist and um ostensibly because I had kept having breakouts on my skin and I'd seen an acupuncturist when I'd lived in Newcastle and he said oh you should see this woman I think he knew why he was telling me to see her I don't think it was about my skin I think it was about lots of other stuff that was going on with me and uh, and I saw her for a long time and a few years really and she helped me kind of unlock and unravel lots of things that had happened to me as a child in terms of you know things like the Bradford fire that I was at when I was um 12 years old and then also my brother's death and how that had affected our family in terms of my parents relationship and and not to blame myself um not to carry any guilt about that you know because that's uh, you know very much a a well-known phenomena isn't it when a sibling dies that you know why was I the one that was left and why you know how can how can I kind of make everything better with this family that is just scattered now you know having been such a tight unit so I think the talking therapies really what that's what we did The, the you know the needles were lovely but the it was the talking that was really important and to somebody who was trained to do that not just talking to your friends and talking to you know um people who'd listen but that you know that's all lovely but actually sometimes you need some honesty and you need um it's boundaries I think and you need to you know to hear that so I think that was where I started that journey of kind of forgiveness in terms of you know my my own feelings of, of guilt, and also feeling that I could live a positive and happy life you know, in spite of the sadness that had happened, because again, it goes back to carrying things with you. I think there was a little bit of me, or a large part of me actually, that thought things were always going to end badly after my brother died you know the things you loved were always going to be taken away and that sadness would you know would be an inevitability and um, I just had to kind of get my head around the idea that maybe as she put it my shit thing had happened (laughs) she once said to me one day And, um, and that doesn't mean there won't be more terrible things but what I learned from that whole experience was that how resilient we can be as human beings and how you can come back from something where you feel like it's the end of the world it doesn't mean that you forget that person and grief never really goes away but you can live a life that's positive and a life that doesn't have blame and bitterness
1: you know what it sounds like such a simple thing for someone to say maybe your shit thing has happened But it's such a brilliant reframing, isn't it? Because the brain does, the brain uh, figures out every worst case scenario so that it protects you. So it's really easy for it to go down the route of constantly being on guard for the terrible thing. And actually that very simple sentence
0: just takes the pressure off, just relieves you of having to see it coming. I can see myself lying on her kind of bed, you know, her treatment bed when she and the sun beaming through and when she said it it was like something had lifted from me because i'd never seen it that way you know i'd i'd just always Thought in my head, even though I, if you'd met me, you'd have thought I was quite a happy, jolly person. You know, I wasn't kind of you know gloomy and uh, despondent. I didn't. I I still thought the cup was half full, not half empty. You know, I was I was still leaning towards. And in the book, I discuss my parents' kind of um, way of dealing with things. And my dad was definitely the glass was half empty. My mum was you know the opposite. And I, 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 even though I had this exterior of that, I, I clearly inside was protecting myself and ready for the next disappointment you know and that leads you to be quite defensive that leads you to be unable to really truly be loved and to be um, even by not not necessarily sexual relationships or you know your part, your life partners it's it's friendships and you know skirting away from real commitment to things and people
1: it it gives you a prickly exterior that you don't realise
0: you're uh,
1: projecting, but it yeah. prevents people from getting close. Yeah,
0: I don't know. I remember. Is it a um? What's the? Is it a blowfish? The fish that um has the yes. you know yeah that and and that's kind of you know it is that, and actually prickly or a little bit edgy. That's kind of probably a, a good description of how I could be, you know. And and it wasn't because I didn't like those people or because I didn't you know I didn't want to spend time with them. But what if they? What if? What if this? boss didn't like me what if they those people dropped me what if you know because before that I hadn't ever thought about those things you know before before Daniel died and and it's it's amazing how the brain kind of subtly absorbs those things you know it's not it's not like you were you know one day I had a brother the next day I didn't oh well this is the new me you know it, it just builds up and you don't see it.
1: Yeah it's um it's a really interesting uh, journey and it's uh, a really interesting idea of this, allowing things to re- to be relieved. And I think you said something a second ago about people would never have necessarily thought that this was going on because I presented in a certain way. And I have to admit that when I was reading the book, I even though you were describing these things that were happening and they were obviously horrible. In your retelling, I thought there's something very steady about Gabby. I can imagine that to your friends, to your family, you are the the people that they tether themselves to when things are tough. Because it seems, even in your writing, that you are quite steady,
0: quite still, quite pragmatic. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's... I think when my brother died, I was always that person, I think. But when my brother died... Uh, I was the eldest child, and um, I took a lot of stuff on. You know, I I wanted to, in practical terms, I wanted to help my mum who had a business, and I wanted to try and keep that going while she was literally just anchored to a chair. You know, she just couldn't; she was immobilized with grief. So I wanted to try and keep that going. And then I was also wanting to be everybody's. You know, are you okay? Is everything all right? We you know, and you keep doing that for a while until you hit a wall. Eventually, you know, you can't just keep doing that. And I think. My personality has always probably been, I wouldn't say I've got leadership qualities, but you know, because that sounds a little bit grand, but being the eldest of a big family, being the eldest of the wider family, you know, the oldest grandchild, all of those things, I think I always wanted to you know make sure a situation was okay with my cousins you know we'd be at family path. Right, right let's do this let's do that I was always the one they said Gabby will do a speech you know or Gabby will, <laughs> Gabby will do this um, thing so I suppose there was a self-fulfilling prophecy there as well you know because people are telling you that when you're growing up and then an enjoyment actually of being that person you know I don't think there's anything wrong in saying it doesn't mean that I was craving attention or anything like that because actually in spite of what I do I, I don't really love you know undue attention i just enjoyed things being right you know and getting i don't want to say that i don't mean it in a judgmental way but just getting things right making sure that everybody was okay making sure that um uh, the plans you know were, uh, were put in place i am an organizer i suppose that's what it comes down to and a natural kind of affinity for you know making plans and making sure they come off so on a practical level that has its attributes um emotionally at some point you know you've got to take your foot off the gas a little bit because when something like that happens to to you you just can't keep going you know i remember wendy mandy the acupuncturist saying to me it's like you're literally your foot is against the floor in a car you have no there's no petrol left you're just working now on adrenaline and you've just you know the reserves are are going and and that really kind of hit home because when you start talking about your physical health as well as well as your mental well-being um I, i kind of had to listen had to sit up
1: I had a really similar experience, not to make uh, this show about me, but it's just I had a very similar thing of always uh, making sure the external things were looked after. And like you, I was on a therapist table. This time it was uh, someone doing Reiki who said, you are completely depleted. You've got nothing left to give. You have to stop and actually start looking after yourself. And it sounds Mm. as though, and Mm. that was a really pivotal moment for me because I hadn't even considered that I needed Mm. to give myself time and attention. And so I'm curious if that was another revelation as part of that of like actually I need to, I can't make sure everyone else is okay unless I'm doing that for me too.
0: Yeah, and I think when you start to get your head around that and reframe that as well that you don't see looking after yourself as something that's selfish or you know self-absorbed. Actually, I I I am really ran with that for the rest of my life until I sit here talking to you now in terms of if I'm not able to exercise, eat well, get enough sleep. I'm no good to anybody, you know, whether it's work, whether it's my family, and they all get that and everybody, you know, that I, that I live with and work with kind of knows, you know, that's what I'm, that's what I like. And so when I'm at work, you know, we need to stop, we need to get nourishment, you know, we can't just keep going all day. I've, I'm on a trip abroad, you know, I, I always say to my producers, I'll work you an 18 hour day, but at some point I've got to do some exercise, you know, I need a bit of time to time out. And at home, you know, I carry through that kind of philosophy, I look at my week and think, well, I've got to exercise four or five times this week, uh, you know, where is it going to fit in? And, and I'm, and that's kind of since really my mid twenties how i've i think i've managed to live which is you know it's it's been kind of called all sorts of things over the decades hasn't it but self-care really sums it up I think and looking after yourself so that you can be available and be the best person you can be for everybody else you love so um, there's no no shame in that you know I used to kind of if I went for a facial or a massage I'd pretend it was a meeting I think no that that's the time out for me that's something that I'm I'm going to give back to myself and I really enjoy I'm going to own it. (laughs) I used to
1: be a beauty editor for a magazine i had to go and do those things for my job and yet i would still minimize them because i felt it was a bit grand and i was having having an easy life but you have to and you're talking there about working an 18 hour day and saying but i'm going to need to exercise i think that really speaks to setting boundaries and also building that muscle of saying what you want Mm. you started out in journalism in a sort of similar way to me, it's kind of a local radio and a thousand or a million people will want to do this job. So you've got to be the most accommodating. And the Mm. first thing that goes is the thing that you want to do. The amount of times I worked in newspaper offices when I was on work experience and I didn't go to the loo all day (laughs) for fear of appearing that I wasn't doing my job. And I would say that the environment that you worked in, which I guess is male, was male dominated at the time. Did you feel that...
0: You had to really find your voice to be able to do those things. Yeah, and it was also of its time, you know, at that period, which was the late 90s, there was this whole, there was this girl power thing going on, but there was also this ladette thing happening. And and what, you know, what kind of powerful women looked like was... Was, was something that the media seemed to be kind of very, you know, transfixed on. And it wasn't necessarily how I saw myself. I certainly didn't want to be somebody that, to fit in with the boys, and especially in an environment like, you know, Sky Sports, which was very, very male-dominated. I didn't want to go out on big drinking binges all the time. And I didn't, you know, you'd have a drink with a colleague after work, whatever, but not. I didn't want that to be me. And I was being swept along a little bit to a certain extent but not feeling great about myself and and it wasn't just the the kind of you know the social aspect of things it was that office environment you know the machismo in in the office which i you know i kind of cringe at certain things that i went along with you know that you just hear yourself not not so much agreeing but not speaking out and going that's that's out of order why why did you say that and it takes you time to find your voice obviously your confidence that you can say okay enough I'm not I'm not dealing with this now or like I did I moved somewhere and then the times were changing and I found my kind of allies somewhere else and and I say in the book as well you know that is not to paint sky as some kind of like island of misogyny because I'm sure if I was working in a top law firm I was working in a a top accountancy firm in the city or on the trading floor you know all that stuff was going on it was just of its you know period of, of its time so I think um Having your voice and being able to say, you know, okay, guys, I'm. Um, we need to stop for lunch now. We need to. Everybody needs to have a bit of a break now. Or everybody, all those. That comes with confidence, doesn't it? I think in your environment. Um, not always. I mean, some people struggle and, and they. They, they might be somebody at home that finds it really easy to do that. Um, but when they get to work for some reason, I think we need to be mindful of that, actually. I think that's the next level almost of awareness, isn't it? It's not just about you and you putting your boundaries, but then looking at people who you think might not be as good at, at saying what they think mm-hmm. and looking out for them. And all of this stuff comes through experience. It comes quicker to some people than others, and it's more natural to some people than others. But I think if you can show the way... And do it in a way that isn't aggressive or, you know, um, you're not trying to run roughshod over people's plans. You're just looking out for people. Then it's just a much nicer place to be, you know, wherever that is, whether it's your home life or your work life.
1: It. Um, yes. And I do think exactly as you say, uh It's about setting your own boundaries. It's about finding that muscle and also keeping an eye on other people, which definitely when you're reading the book, you get a real sense of, again, like I said, about people tethering themselves to you. I can imagine you were a safe space for someone to confide and say, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about this. Can you give me some advice? Because you seem to navigate it quite well. And it also seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if you did go into an environment and you said, I it's an eighteen-hour day, but I need to do this at some point, or what? Ha- and it was a problem. It it appears that you would have the insight to say, "Well, then this isn't right for me," rather yeah. than try and fight.
0: Yeah, I think the, I think you you learn to spot the situations that that can be negotiated or can be discussed, and you can work through to a, a solution that is going to work for everybody. And then you spot a situation where this is not going to change and I'm not going to change that person. And perhaps ITV was an example of that when the new boss came in and I could just feel, I've got quite a good gut instinct generally and um, on lots of different things. And I could, I sensed that he wasn't going to be happy with, first of all, me being pregnant with twins while I was presenting a Champions League final. And then just me per se, I just felt there was never, whatever I did, it wasn't going to be enough. And so when I left ITV. I actually didn't have to leave. You know, they talked about me doing um, a lower level of competition to the Champions League and, and it was pretty much a demotion. I could have stayed and fought back. But I actually thought I didn't want to be in that environment and feel like that after I'd been there for so long. And I wasn't going to prepare to just throw the towel in full stop. So when I went to the BBC... It was like a learning, you know, from the very, going up, almost from the bottom up again because I was in a completely new environment, new people. They had never worked with me before. They didn't know what to think of me. They'd see me on telly, but they didn't have a clue how I worked. And I had to build relationships again. And it was quite scary, really. I was throwing myself into something, this enormous organisation that people tend to work, you know, a lot of people work for the BBC for life. You know, <laughs> I've been all over the place with Sky, ITV. I'd had a lot of experience in commercial radio as well. So I had a, a different broadcast experiences and it was the best thing really I think professionally that ever happened to me and I don't mean for for the point of being at the BBC all this time I just mean in terms of having a reset actually at an age when it was very valuable I was 33 years old my twins were a year old and it was a really good time to reset and say yep I really do want to do this and I'm going to get better at it and maybe maybe some of the things that the old boss said, he had a point. Maybe it was a personal thing. Maybe maybe I could never have been good enough for him, but I can be now. I can be better now. Um, so, what looked like a terrible thing, and the reason I wanted to write about that, and I say in the book, it's not about trying to get back on somebody and you know name and shame somebody who kind of you know um, let me go. It was more actually to say I, I released him from any kind of feelings of bitterness and anger towards him because actually. I was much better off in the next place.
1: And that really comes across. And actually, when I was reading the the whole, the end of ITV section, I was getting quite angry. <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people will read it and think... this reminds me of this person i worked with or they Mm. had it in for me and all Mm. of those very easy things that you can begin to grab out of the air that are attached to your insecurities would come in and so when you actually make the entire situation benign and actually not even benign positive and say he was a lesson basically and it was my opportunity to either learn from it or not Mm. i was it, it was actually really good to see to read that and think that's the way to look at all of these things that happen rather than clock up a series of terrible relationships with people or awful bosses to think about what is the really amazing thing Mm. I can take away and move
0: forward with. Absolutely and that doesn't mean that for a few months I was you know really not angry but I was just so frustrated because I felt like it was the first time that I hadn't managed to turn somebody in you know in a way that um I, come on let's let, what can I do what how because I was always really good at critique or receiving you know critique because I've been a sports person and sports people are pretty good at that because you know it's how you get better at sport and I notice that now actually my job with the sports pundits I work with they receive information like that really well you know when you say no try and do this or don't do it that way or you know don't speak one until I've finished this or they don't get offended by it and so I couldn't get that with him you know so I, I that was the the frustration I think and then also leaving somewhere that I loved you know and the people I worked with at ITV I loved and I'd had such great time there I'd met my husband I'd had children so all these lovely life things had happened with all these people you know so they'd come to my wedding and they'd been part of me being pregnant and all of that so I had to separate those things and, and also in time When I did kind of realise that it was a massive lesson, it was so liberating to not carry around anger for another human being who had no idea, you know, because, of course, when you're busy being angry about somebody, they're just getting on with their life. (laughs) You know, they're they're not waking up going, oh, I wish Gabby wasn't angry with me today. They're they're having a great life.
1: Yeah, and it's just that thing, it's the, re- it's the release, isn't it? It's untethering mm. yourself from the negative energy. And actually, interestingly, you talked about criticism there and critique. And I do want to unpick that a little bit with you because, mainly because I, and I suspect some of my listeners, will want to get better at taking criticism. I am definitely very guilty of, but I gave it my best shot. And <laughs> obviously, I internalise this. But I wish it didn't wound me so much. So if you were to say to somebody, "Here's how to reframe criticism and critique so that it doesn't wound you; it actually mm. empowers you." How would
0: you how would you <laughs> coax them into that way of thinking? Um, I think you detach any personal attributes to when you're giving somebody any kind of critique. You know, it, so if it's about me, with me usually, I it's about how I broadcast and as long as the person that you're asking for that critique from is somebody you, you, first of all, you you really have to respect them because it's a non-starter if you don't think that they're worth listening to. So choose those people wisely. And when the mentor I talked about earlier from Sky died, he died um, a few years ago. And I was a bit, Rodolus at that point because I had nobody else that I'd I'd gone to for that kind of advice before. And during the World Cup, I think it was in 2018, there was a producer I really value, a guy called Rich Hughes. And I said to him, look, I know I'm not quite cracking these interviews because it's not my natural broadcast place. I I normally host the shows, don't do the post-match interviews. Can you give me some feedback after the first match? And he wrote me the most amazing email afterwards, which was, really detailed kind of uh, insight into what he thought I'd elicited and why the answer might have been better if I'd done this and how how to reframe the questions. Because it's a very, doing a post-match interview is a very specific kind of broadcasting compared to say a long form sat down interview like this or something that happens in a studio. And I think he was so, I think he was flattered actually to be asked because you know I'm similar age to him, a lot of experience. It wasn't as if I was a very junior person that just started. And I think he then respected me probably more and I do ask um, people that I really respect, you know, for, for for any kind of feedback that they want. And it is it is not it's taking that personal out, I think, and being um, in your own mind, accepting that there'll be things that you might slightly disagree with, but you have to see it from the other person's perspective because otherwise, you're never going to get better at it. Funnily enough, I had a message on my Instagram just yesterday from somebody about my podcast Midpoint, and she said, "I really love it, but you just you speak too quickly." And it makes me feel quite anxious. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. We'll, we'll have a, you know, I'll have that. I'll bear that in mind when I'm recording my next podcast. And this morning, the same woman has replied to me and said, I just checked. I had it on 1.5. <laughs> 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 but I was so glad that I hadn't waded in saying, well, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry you find it like that. Because um, and actually but I was really pleased that when I read it, I didn't feel particularly uh, fronted. You know, I thought, oh, she's got, maybe she's got a point. Sometimes I do speak too quickly. And and she'd done it in a nice way as well. She'd started off with a compliment. I really enjoy your podcast, but, (laughs) and that's the other thing I think when you're giving criticism to people, it's always important to start with something praiseworthy or positive at the beginning. If you fire in with, you know, the, all the negatives, then they're just going to feel attacked and and they're really overwhelmed almost. And I think having teenagers actually has probably helped me to understand that a bit more in terms of how you frame those those points of um Advice and suggestions and you know it, you, you seem to be doing really really well at school at the moment and things are going great and your grades are really really good I've just noticed though that you know you don't seem to be um, doing a lot of work at home in the evenings you know <laughs> how are you how are you going to keep up with that in your final year of A levels and and then they kind of more like say well I'm I'm using all my freeze at school actually and I'm doing this and I'm you know doing that but they know that you've noticed you know so um, I mean God it's been a it's been a lifetime of, of kind of learning with children but I I feel like that you know, that kind of approach seems to work a bit better. <laughs>
1: God, that's so reasonable. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, but I know. My that, is, I are say, that is to this. not that
0: is not kind of you know the natural my natural go to. I've had to really work on that because firing in saying you're not doing any work, <laughs> you know, that has not received been received very well. So yeah, <laughs> that is a learning.
1: Support for this podcast comes from my Patreon page at Patreon.com forward slash the emma gun show this podcast is what i do it's my job it's how i earn a living and with patreon and your support as patrons i can put the time required into research booking guests paying for editing and production booking and paying for studios and much more that goes into creating episodes of the show your support as patrons allows me to create a show for you that's informative inspiring educational and entertaining with guests who'll add value to your lives Thank you to everyone who's already become a patron of this podcast. I appreciate it so much. I've never asked for you to pay for the show in the six and a half years I've been making it. And all I'm asking now for ad-free audio and some video episodes of the podcast is £3 a month. That's just £3 a month, less than a magazine and most cups of coffee. And the more patrons there are, the more bonus content I'll be able to create. So become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gun Show. Well okay so you mentioned the word reset earlier which I clocked and thought right I want to come back to that because it it really to me ties into the title because I got to the end and I was like I totally get this it's I mean, I'm not a professional sports person, but I've seen that people during halftime will, uh, during the break, whatever you want to call it, whatever sport, clearly (laughs) no competition here. But they'll sit with their orange segments and they'll have a chat about what they did really well and what they did poorly. And it's the stuff that they did poorly that they strategize to avoid doing Mm -hmm. in the future. And the reset, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's this reset of like taking a pause and thinking, hmm, yeah, we won't do that again. And a little bit like you were saying there about taking a beat and not letting your immediate reaction come out. I'm like, why aren't you doing this? Can we talk about the benefit of pausing, of thinking, of of taking a beat, as Jackie Collins would always say in her incredible books, before speaking, before acting? Is that something that you had to learn along the way? Oh, my valuable? gosh, yes.
0: I'm, I'm still working on it because um, I think when I was younger, I had had quite the temper, you know, and I would really kind of fire off if somebody was, you know, annoying me and uh, or something had aggravated me or I felt there was an injustice somewhere. And I think my dad has got a really kind of fiery temper as well. And, you know, um, I, I think in the house that that was, you know, very highly charged and growing up and and sometimes that can be, be quite powerful. And, you know, you can have these really great conversations, but obviously, it's not the way to be every day. I mean, God, you get hypertension for one thing, but also (laughs) you don't get the result you want generally. Um, And so I've had to really work on that a lot and just take a moment. And whether it's about to fire off an email and sitting back and saying, no, I'm not actually not going to send that email. I'm going to give it 24 hours and have a think about it overnight and see what the best way forward is I I definitely find myself doing things like that more not replying to texts or not replying to an email straight away or sending the email sometimes I send the email to my agent (laughs) and I say to her I'm sending this to you so that I don't send it to this person and I just I've released it now and and I'll have a bit of thought and a bit of you know a a little bit of reflection on the situation Um, and my husband's really he's really good at um, kind of recognizing when I might be about to kind of you know jump into somebody and just go no okay don't um, don't let them press any buttons there but that that isn't something that comes naturally to me you I know mean, I really I, I have to I think but it's like anything as you mentioned muscle it's the more you work on it the more natural it becomes and the more you're conscious of it it's being mm-hmm. present isn't it in those situations and actually listening to what the person's saying because sometimes you you hear the you hear something that they haven't meant or you hear something that is a tiny part of what they've said and then you've lost all the other information Um, and we don't you know it's not it's not a skill that is really taught is it you know kids at school aren't taught how to listen properly how to 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 communicate properly you know that that comes through if you've got parents who are interested in that if you've got um, you know friends who who are good at that but it's something that really we should probably spend a little bit more time on I think with with young people. And and I've noticed as well, like with my kids that, you know, that they like to debate, but they don't necessarily want to hear what you're saying back. They like this idea that, you know, they're transmitting all the time. And I and I wonder if that's a young person's thing or if it's a generational thing. But we t- I try and explain to them as well, you know, about just hearing what the other person is, is saying. As well,
1: if you have a prickly exterior or a prickly defence mechanism then you're not going to hear the positive you're only going to hear the negative and of so and i'm projecting massively onto you here from my own experience but i look back at some of my my past and the way that i have reacted and it's not in it's not how i'd react now with the years under my belt but i still torment myself with the fact that well that person didn't like me as a result and that's mm. completely deserved
0: yeah yeah i think um you remember don't you those key phrases or I remember there was a very very important woman at the BBC she was the top top dog really at the BBC and the job for the one show had come up because Christine Bleakley and Adrian Charles had left to go to ITV and the person who was in line for the male part of the role really wanted me to be screen tested and really wanted to work with me and she said that viewers didn't like me because I was cold and and I she told my agent that and I hung on to that for way too long, you know, because that really kind of wounded me because first of all, she'd never met me ever. And and secondly, I think, well, how how am I giving that impression? And then over the years, what I've realized through having great you know, people that I work with um, in terms of my agent and the people that I trust is that I think because of sports broadcasting is so precise. And if you get it wrong, people just don't trust you, you know, um, that you come across as. Maybe being quite clinical, a bit of a know-all <laughs> because it's that's, that's, that's what sports broadcasting you know tends to, to to be it's loaded with stats and facts, and that maybe that was what she was referring to, but I was in my personal life I I, would, I I just didn't recognize that description you know I felt like I was a generous person and I was kind and I was warm to people and and so it was it was really hard to to shake that description off for a while and and I couldn't hear any praise, Emma. If if, we know for a while, if somebody with that going round in my head, doesn't matter what people said to me, all I could think of is that I was the Ice Queen, wandering round, you know, freezing people with my icy stare. (laughs) (laughs) The BBC death glares all around. Logan's coming. Watch your
1: back. Um, (laughs) Did you ever, as a result, because media is famous, as many other industries are, but media gets a bad rap for it for being super competitive. And I guess incredibly competitive among women. And I've definitely been in this position where I have thought I've seen someone else doing incredibly well. And I have thought, well, maybe I'll just make myself a little bit more like them and then my success will follow. Did you ever in your earlier years feel any of that kind of pressure?
0: I suppose because I was there weren't many of us, there weren't many women doing sports broadcasting. Um, Sue Barker was at the BBC, but I felt she was very different to me. She was a bit older and she was very much entrenched in tennis and doing question of sport and had her own style and her own kind of following and then claire balding who again i felt we were very different we we didn't we didn't have to compete with each other you know we we had very different style i did learn from her a lot and i looked at those people and realized that they were incredibly well prepared very well produced very well researched you know and wondered whether or not maybe i maybe i needed to do more of that you know it's different working environment different practice to places I'd worked at before because there were no women presenting sport ITV so I didn't have anybody that I would feel that kind of professional rivalry with but there did seem to be a phony rivalry built up with when Sky started having more women and you know the papers it was almost as if there was only ever going to be room for one female football presenter in the world so you know when more women started doing it there was a little bit of that you know I, I think men kind of quite liked that you know creating as if there was some battle I think you're not doing this with the blokes you know so um why why are we pretending that there can only be one woman doing this job um so I've I think I've always been quite authentic in that respect you know that I've just done it my way but looked at people that I respect and people that I think are really good and want to know how they you know how they've got that good but I am um, but I haven't felt it so, but you do feel it in other areas of life definitely I mean, never more so than when you become a mother. You know, you're at school gates, going, "Am I bake a cake, mum? Am I gonna be always have the best playdates, mum? Am I gonna be the working mum that never seems to, you know, never seems to be around, and everybody kind of rolls their eyes at? Am I, that that is that me? You know, all of those things, you you start to really question yourself, and um, and I talk a little bit in the book actually about that kind of guilt that suddenly. you know I felt hang on why am I why why am I supposed to feel guilty about working and having babies what's happened here and trying not to let that come anywhere near my my mindset otherwise it was going to be a very miserable experience working and having babies and I didn't want either of them to be miserable so um so yeah I think at various points in my life I've I I know what you're saying and I recognize it but not so much I think with the main job if you like
1: Mm. and actually speaking of motherhood I'm not a mother but I have lots of friends who are and I almost chuckle at them when they tell me about the party that they're putting on or the balloon wall. <laughs> and I think about when I was a kid and you get your, your your pat lunch in an ice cream box, an empty ice cream box with an elastic band around it. And I just think we've made it so hard for each other. And again, in that section in the book, it really comes through of like, right, okay, I need this in order to do my job and be a good mum. And I make no apologies for it. I need this support, I need Jane. That's that's happening, and sod anyone who thinks that that's wrong.
0: Yeah, and I, I and I, you know, I think probably ruffles people's feathers a bit, doesn't it? Because you know, they the the the, the ones. What I felt at the time was there was like these two camps almost, you know, the ones who were juggling work and then the ones who were full time. And, uh, and actually, you know, we could all coexist and we're all going to be able to learn from each other and have our, you know, our helpers. And I didn't want to be that person that denied help as well. You know, you get that kind of, a journalist was telling me recently that she'd interviewed a celebrity who absolutely insisted that she wasn't allowed to mention that she had a nanny. And I think, well, my God, if, if I denied my nanny her existence, she'd have every right to walk out the door. You know, she was enormously important to us. We had two nannies until they were five, not two at the same time but they had two nannies back to back and and after that we had kind of mother's helps but I would never have said I haven't got a nanny because uh, what, what am I? Some kind of superhuman that can work and bring up kids and they get fed and they don't, you know, It just giving people credit for the jobs that they do, it's really important that job and I wanted my you know, help to really feel valued, whatever they, whatever title you want to give them, that they all felt really valued. And I had Auntie Jane, who used to come down from Leeds and help me, and with her daughter sometimes. And then I had my friend Jane, who had four kids and was just the font of all knowledge. And all those people that collectively helped me do what I did, and also helped me, you know, be the best mum I could be in terms of information and um, routine and everything else. So. Yeah, I, I just felt like it was really important to not deny that. And I wasn't failing anybody um, by not being, you know, 100% perfect all the time as a as a mum making mistakes on an almost daily basis.
1: <laughs> Can we talk about a um, friend of the show, Wim Hof? Yeah because he's I mean you obviously have spent time with him he's taught you his breathing techniques one-on-one and you've done incredible things with him he's been on this show my biggest learning from him having not had the experience I uh you had with him is that you have to go through the discomfort to get to the good stuff Mm. and so don't if if things begin to feel uncomfortable don't shy away and go back to where mm. you were, push through it. And that was that was really my learning in my own life from him. Mm. And I wonder, it seemed as though you had a, an incredible experience with Wim. Is, was that a life-changing moment? Were you expecting it to no. have that impact on you?
0: No, I had no... I had some expectations in terms of I felt it, I was going to learn something. I was definitely... I felt I was going to come through the experience with some learnings, but I had no idea that the breathing would be so impactful. And it... Uh, continues to blow me away every time I take myself away and do some breathing, you know, how how much, uh, how restorative it is, how deep, uh, you know, because I've never been good at meditating and this is the, the closest I've got and it feels so easy compared to in the past when I've attempted to, to meditate. But I think it, pushing through the hard stuff was definitely a takeaway, but also the blocks that we put in our mind when we decide we can't do something or that's not me, that's not who I am, and that might be because people have told you that growing up or you've decided along the way that that's not who you think you are. And it was very um, black and white in, in the show. It was about heights. You know, I, I'm, no, I'm not really very good with heights, so I won't be jumping off that 400 foot bridge. And what I realised was that I, I don't know why I told myself, first of all, that I wasn't good with heights. You know, where where had that come from? I wasn't sure. But also working through uh, the fears that we have, and you know, and that's a very um, kind of obvious thing. But there are fears that cloud our judgment and our development and our our goals through all of our life in, in different areas. A fear of commitment, or it may be um, a fear of being loved, a fear of being um, a part of something bigger than ourselves. And and so that to clear that fear felt enormously um, refreshing and resetting. You know, um, to to do it at the age that I was as well. It felt like it came just in time. I, I could, I could really feel that moment where releasing off the bridge, and then afterwards, an elation. You know, just feeling so excited and happy that I could go on for the next half of my life without feeling that there were any blockages or um, anything that couldn't be potentially overcome. And that sounds like, of course, there are things that I'm not. You know, I'm not going to do everything in life but you know knowing that actually if I want to do something and set my mind to it I can get there
1: it's exactly right isn't it you can create your own prison your own mental prison of can't of I can't do that and a lot of that's informed by fear and so if you face a huge fear or face something very dangerous like jumping mm. backwards off a 500 foot high bridge then you're you're telling yourself something on many, many levels, physical, mental, emotional, that anything is mm. possible if you put your mind to it.
0: And trusting as well, you know, to do to do that, the relationship with Wim was really important, obviously. And that that moment at the very end of the show, Freeze the Fear, was where he came into his own. He'd been incredible the whole time. He's got this energy, his enthusiasm, his his will to help people is is. Real. There's no. There's no off button. You know what you've seen of Wim Hof, and you've spoken to Wim Hof. But that that's it all the time. We've had weeks of of that. But that moment on the bridge where he was with us individually, one on one, and it was a trust. You know that you've gone through this process with him and trusting people, and. Our world can be quite cynical and we can have experiences that make us feel wary of people and decide that, you know, that's not for me because I've been burnt in that situation or I'm not going to do that anymore because I don't trust those people. Actually, it, it really narrows our experiences and so for me there was a lot there was a lot of um, focus on that trust and trust with the people who were putting the rigging on you you know putting all the safety harnesses on you and I don't know these people you know for, if I've never met them before until we got to the show but having such enormous faith in them and trust in what they do and and that was a big takeaway as well um it was it was remarkable the whole the whole experience was, was remarkable and I I do tap into it mentally quite a lot, actually, and because I I felt so great when I got back to England from Italy and I wanted and I knew life was going to kind of get back onto the hamster wheel of going to work and being busy and everything going on. But I really wanted to remember what what I'd felt and how I'd felt about myself and um, and carry that through because um, it was an enormous gift and beyond my expectations.
1: Listeners, there's a moment where Gabby is getting onto this very, very high bridge, about to jump, jump off it. And there is a sentence where she describes that when she walks over, she basically unhooks, I forget what it's called, begins with C. Uh, the,
0: uh, the the cabina, the car, 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 carabiner. It's like, a, yes. it's like, you know, those hooks that you see climbers, cli- you know, they hook onto yeah. something. Yeah. And I and I stood on it. I heard this noise and I'd unhooked it and very calmly the guy, and there was another one, but they wanted you to be on at least, you know, two. And they, and this guy who was from Doncaster went, right, Gabby, get back, get back over the bridge. <laughs> so I climbed back over, and I was like, why? What's going on? He said, you've just unhooked. Uh, <laughs> and afterwards, when I was telling the guys, they were like, uh, Patrice Ever, who just thinks I'm the clumsiest person they the went, oh, Gabby, only you could do that. How could you do that? Um, because, uh, yeah, somehow I'd, I'd managed to, you know, potentially be free before they wanted me to be free falling put it that way but even then I still wanted to go back you know I still felt okay about it
1: (laughs) it's not a sign yeah you should
0: you should know that as a reader
1: because when you're writing a book you have no idea how it's going to be received in that moment with that sentence I clenched (laughs) just so you know but also I think the thing that struck me about the Wim Hof experience was perhaps the fact that there was something really spiritual that happened or it seemed spiritual in the writing Mm with doing the breathing Mm. being very aware of your blood and I've heard people talk about that before Mm. with meditation suddenly being very aware of the physical Mm. processes and feeling as though you were connecting with something had that ever happened to you before
0: I've had um I've had experiences when I've been very uh, when I've had acupuncture Wendy Mandy's very spiritual woman and I've had experiences where I've I've felt like a real presence you know on the morning of my wedding actually I didn't write about this in the book but um I was in I was up in Scotland where we got married and she was coming to the wedding and she said on the morning of the wedding I'm going to give you a little acupuncture session so that you really feel present in your day and you really enjoy your day and I had this overwhelming physical feeling that my brother was was in the room with us and um, and that was probably the strongest feeling I'd had and I think the thing about these kinds of connections is you just have to be so um you have to really let yourself go, but you also have to be strangely present. It's really, it's a real kind of dichotomy because you have to feel everything. And um, and I hadn't really wanted to, I don't think I wanted to almost go back there again. And then when I had this breathing with Wim the first time, I didn't know what was going to happen. We were told to lie on the floor in this this hut and start breathing. And he was obviously instructing us. So I had no idea what I was going to feel. And it was so physically transformative. You know, I first of all felt freezing cold. Then I had, after three rounds, I felt warm. But I was now seeing the blood in my body and felt I could I could almost see it flowing through and started to see quite a lot of images in my mind. And, and then the most dramatic and kind of um, extraordinary thing, happened at the end, was when I stood up and we all started kind of, everybody was having different experiences, I looked over to Tamsin Althwaite, who was one of the other people doing the show, and I just had this unbelievable outpouring of love that I had to go and give her because um it was almost tangible it's like if you could if love could be something that you could put in in your hands I had it it was there and I had to go give her it because it was her mum and her mum had died a few years before and she literally I never known I've never known Tamsin before the show I never met her she mentioned her mum had died but it wasn't like we'd had big chats about her mum or you know she'd that that was we were really at the start of the process and I was hugging her for quite a while and I I was in tears and I could you know it was a, it was her mum I was just totally convinced that you know this was this was not convinced I was I was living in it you know I wasn't even it wasn't even something that I was feeling was I could get away from you know what I mean I, I, didn't, I didn't feel I could kind of ignore it it was so powerful and she was then she was totally you know she felt it too she burst into tears and and that was a real bonding moment for us, actually, because it was the beginning of the process. And we we were women of a similar age, and you know, both kind of you know quite quite similar in lots of ways, actually, in terms of our like what we'd learnt through life. And we just that was a, a something you know when you really feel you'll have for, with somebody forever, in terms of a a real connection.
1: So lovely. Now, unfortunately, we have drawn. To the end of our time together. But listeners that will no doubt have uh, been able to hear that you are an incredible storyteller. And like I said, the book is such a brilliant telling of your life, but sets the scene so beautifully at certain things. I was transported back to london twenty twelve and you're so right as well i was I was a grumpy Londoner who said, oh, I'm going to leave London for two weeks and I've never felt more community spirit than in those two weeks. It was absolutely magical Aww. and it it was just it it's just a a wonderful book, and i like I said right at the top of the conversation. The thing I really appreciated about it and I think what listeners will appreciate is the authenticity and the fact that life isn't perfect, mistakes are going to happen, but it's so fine to learn from them, accept what's gone wrong and move forward with this incredible positive purpose, which is how I when I put down the book, there was no clenching. There was just a real sense of. I'm so glad I've read this.
0: Oh, thank you so so much. I'm I'm really I feel quite emotional <laughs> because, um, I I just you know I'm, I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled that that's how you felt. And thank you for having me on. It's been so lovely chatting to you uh, about some of the incidents in the book and your take on it because that's really why you do it, isn't it? Because you want you want people to take away something that is a little bit more than just the words you've written down on a page.
1: Um, Obviously, the links to the book will be in the show notes. So listeners, run, run, run to the show notes, click on that link and get it because you are going to want to you're going to want to hear Gabby's story. It's wonderful. Gabby Logan, thank you so much for joining me on The Emma Gunn Show. It's been a delight.
0: Thank you so much, Emma. I've really, really enjoyed myself. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Why not become a patron of The Emma Gunn Show today? For just £3 a month, you can enjoy episodes of the podcast ad-free and in video. That's just £3 less than a cup of coffee for a whole month of the show. Your support means I can keep creating the podcast and also invest in production and creation of bonus content for you to enjoy. To become a patron, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now.